Welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. This is Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and on today's podcast, we have Sarah Hunter Murray here to talk about the mythologies about male sexuality that are at the heart of so much sexual struggle for men and women alike. Sarah is the author of the new book, Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships. I was so thrilled to find Sarah Hunter Murray's book about the myths of male sexuality because I have long said on this podcast that we undersell men. We do men such a disservice when we talk about men's sexuality as simple, easy, they're always in the mood, you just have to stroke them and they'll get off, like what's the big deal? They'll want to have sex with anything that moves. We act like men are animals instead of the complex human beings we know them to be. And we have not brought ourselves culturally to having a nuanced, intelligent conversation about men's sexuality, our assumptions about men's sexuality, and the lived truths in men's lives. And these are the truths that find themselves in my inbox day after day, year after year. The stories you all share with me reveal the nuanced, emotional, social nature of male sexuality. And it's time we update our cultural narratives to reflect that nuance and that humanness, right? So let's dive into this interview. Sarah Hunter Murray is a fabulous sex therapist out of Canada author of Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships. You'll find all of the links to her work in the show notes page for this episode at pleasuremechanics.com. Come on over to pleasuremechanics.com for our full podcast archive to explore our online courses when you are ready to master new erotic skills and subscribe to this podcast to join this weekly conversation about sex and sexuality here on Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. Here is my interview with Sarah Hunter-Murray. Hi, I'm Sarah Hunter-Murray. Um, I have a PhD in human sexuality. Um, I work as a relationship therapist. I'm in private practice in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Um, and I'm the author of Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships. Mm-hmm. And so why this book? Why this topic? Why did men deserve a book of their own? <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, you know, so when I started my research um, as a sexuality researcher, um, you know, I identify as a woman. I'm so curious about women's experiences. And in fact, that's what I started doing. I started exploring how women experience sexual desire. Um, I was fascinated by the complexities and the nuances Um and there was so much that I learned about times that women are in the mood and not so much and, you know, societal messages and psychological issues and biological pieces. Um, and really what started to kind of stand out to me as I was going along the process is that we were really talking about women as being these really complex creatures, perhaps to a fault, kind of maybe overcomplicating women's sexuality, some argue, and I would put myself in that camp. Um, and I realized that we were doing a lot of comparing to men's desire, kind of talking about how, um, and making assumptions, I would say, about how men's desire is quite surface level, straightforward, high. There was kind of this language that suggested that men were always in the mood. Um, and it just kind of hit me one day 
that can't be true, can it? Um, and so I set forth to do um, some research by actually interviewing men, um, having um, you know in-depth conversations, asking about how they experience sexual desire in their relationships and whether these assumptions were accurate or um, maybe not at all correct about how they, they truly experience their sexual interest. So your book came like an answer to my prayers. <laughs> Thank you for writing it because I have been hungry for more in-depth analysis about male sexuality. I feel like we do them such a disservice mm -hmm. when we think about male sexuality as simple and easy to please. So let's dive into these myths because you also do such a great job of showing how these myths hurt all of us and how the myths about male sexuality are in dialogue with the myths about female sexuality. Um, and we're all kind of in this um, sexual culture together, which is a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is the effect of the culture. Mm -hmm. So let's dive into these myths and let's maybe start with your title, Not Always in the Mood and this myth of kind of constant sexual interest and high libido. Why did you choose to center this myth in the title and in the book? Yeah, so I, the reason that I chose, um, you know, the title and to kind of really highlight this idea of not always in the mood is because I think it really touches on this overarching idea that we do hold about men's sexual interest, mm -hmm. that it is high, constant, unwavering, that they're always thinking about sex, it's always on their mind, um, and that if sex is on offer, and particularly in a relationship, and the men in my research are, are largely identifying as heterosexual, so particularly when a female partner initiates sex, um, that there's this idea that they should always take it, that that's their top priority, if you will. Um, and the more and more that I kind of, you know, talk about this stereotype, the more it even kind of makes me cringe even having to say the stereotype because I just know about how, how limiting it is. Um, but I really thought it was important to just start poking a hole in that and saying, you know, let's at least talk about the times that men aren't in the mood, that sometimes there's men who have, you know, low desire, problematically low desire, or even men who have normal, quote unquote, healthy, even high desire, still are human beings and not robots who just might not be in the mood sometimes for various reasons that I don't think we really um, typically acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Can you say that again? It's high, unwavering? High, constant, unwavering. Just this idea that it's you know, I, I kind of use that, you know, the language that almost implies that it's robotic, right? That there's not feelings and emotions, that there's not sickness and illness and, and just, um, you know, stress, you know, men are, men are, of course, humans. But I think when we talk about their sexual desire, we default to this language that implies that they don't experience um, the full range of human emotions that impact all of us and impact, of course, our sexuality as well. Exactly. And then that becomes bundled with once that opportunity for sex presents itself, you will be erect and ready and able to have an orgasm easily, right? Oversimplification, this tremendous pressure it puts on men. What did you see as some of the stories, some of the symptoms that started surfacing as you got to talk to these men about their truth of their sexual experiences? How do they experience this myth? Yeah. Um, so, um, I, you know, when I was interviewing men, so I did my first um, set of my research was on, um, you know, I, I did these in-depth interviews. And so I started by asking men about, you know, how true is this? Like, do you feel sexual desire? Are there ever times where you don't? And I have to admit, a lot of the men actually did start by describing their desire as high, saying, you know what, I'm, I'm 
I'm more often or not in the mood. It's hard to imagine a time where I wouldn't want sex. But it didn't take long um, as our interviews continued, which is what I love about these in-depth conversations is because you get to move past that first thing that you say that comes out of your mouth. And men would start to open up about oh, well, you know, um, maybe my desire isn't as high as it used to be. You know, men in their 30s, 40s, 50s, starting to kind of reflect on some changes they've experienced over time. Men would say things like, oh, well, if I'm tired or really sick, you know, very understandable experiences again, but just starting to kind of, you know, talk about that exception to the rule. Um, But the thing that really caught my attention the most is that when men were talking about times they wouldn't be in the mood to have sex, this came up in the interviews and again on my online um, larger qualitative study, they were talking about times that they didn't feel emotionally connected to their partner. Um, And I think that really deserves um, some attention and some conversation because we often think about men as wanting sex no matter what or being so excited that sex is on offer that they might be able to kind of turn off some of those other emotions. Um, But it came out very clearly and repeatedly through my research that if men were feeling a disconnect, that they were even having a fight with their partner, or maybe there was kind of this distance that hadn't really been resolved, um, that their interest in having sex wasn't always there, that they wanted that connection, they wanted to feel close in order to be physically intimate. So something that we don't really talk about when it comes to to men's sexual desire. Mm Mm-hmm. And you did such a beautiful job zooming in on this idea that if we believe men just want sex to get off, what does that kind of say to the gatekeepers of sex traditionally of the women that it's kind of an opportunity that they'll say yes to no matter what, and that no matter what kind of then depersonalizes it and doesn't speak to the emotional hunger that men are initiating with. Absolutely. This myth is so damaging for all of us. Can you bring us to that moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and 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 so that was kind of this pivotal moment for me was realizing, um, you know, as men were were sharing their experiences with me, that you know they're saying that sex is not just this physical um, need to get off. I'm, you know. Uh, sex ideally feels good. There's some level of pleasure that's experienced. It's not that that's not an important component, but again, um, you know, this idea that it's just about getting off and for a partner and say, particularly female partner in, in the case of my research, if they believe that their male partner is simply looking to get off, they're maybe in a relationship where, you know, the expectation is that it's monogamous and they're the only appropriate person that they can engage with, there's nothing sexy or romantic or flattering about that, right? It's this really limited idea that you just want to get off. It's not about connecting with me. It's not about that moment of intimacy. Um, And when that's missing, I mean, you can understand if any person feels that way about their partner, they might be inclined to turn down that sexual bid. Um, You know, it doesn't feel sexy or, or make anyone feel good to think that you just want to get off. But what men were saying in my research is that, you know, sex is this experience of emotional connection, of this deeper level of intimacy. And what they really wanted was to connect with their partner through sex. Of course, you know, they talked about the side of it that feels good, um, but they really wanted, it was a bid for emotional connection. And I think what's so important, and I'll I'll speak about my clinical work as a relationship therapist, when I'm working with couples and heterosexual couples particularly, where the female partner kind of can hear her male partner speak through that, um, you know, I've seen it over and over again where she'll just kind of have this deep sigh and be like, 
oh, okay, I get it. Like that makes me feel better. That makes me feel like I understand where you're coming from, that I know you better. It doesn't mean she has to say yes to his sexual advance just because it's a bid for connection. But I think at least acknowledging that sex can be that bid for connection from men, I think allows particularly heterosexual couples who are taught these really like limiting roles about how men and women are supposed to be. Um, it gives them a better understanding of their partner and an ability to say, oh, maybe you feel disconnected. You're reaching out through sex. I don't particularly feel turned on right now, but maybe we can kind of sit and talk. Maybe I can warm up to the idea. Maybe we can find a different way of connecting now and try sex later. Um, but it's an idea that if we kind of understand the underlying motivation for um, our partner initiating sex, it just helps us understand their inner world a little better and maybe even um, find a way to connect if that's sometimes like the ultimate thing that's being um, sought after. Mm -hmm. My brain's going about 10 directions right now, but <laughs> one of those places is that what is being sought and if we can bring intention and name that intention more clearly, then as you said, the options open up, the many sexual experiences, erotic connections you can have and the pressure to perform, which dovetails with this other myth of the ever performing penis. Mm -hmm. And that, again, just puts so much pressure on men to have sex mean one thing and that yeah. one thing be something he has to control and manage. Mm -hmm. um, I've been hearing so much from men about the not only pressure to have the erection and the ejaculation, but the pressure to kind of manage the whole sexual experience and be in control all the time. Yes, yes. And that was another thing that came up, this idea that um, men are feeling a lot of the responsibility around sexual activity, and again, particularly in heterosexual relationships, is on their shoulders. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a good reason for that, um, because our society continues to, from a young age, um, reinforce men for seeking out um, sexual stimulation, sexual partners, kind of pushing to that next level of sexual intimacy. So a lot of men can kind of relate to feeling in high school that men who are boys at that time sometimes um, are, are being rewarded and, you know, through popularity, high fives, if they have a partner, if they have sex. Um, and so there's this idea that they are positively rewarded for pursuing sexual activity. Whereas women, um, most women would say that their experience was more around the shaming of their sexuality, that they were taught to be um, passive, that good girls make him wait. Um, you know, having multiple sexual partners can give you labels of being a slut or a whore. Um, and some, you know, women in, in high school, you know, tend to avoid wanting those labels. I think we kind of can challenge them as we become adults, but I think those stere or those um, assumptions about what men and women should do and what they're rewarded or criticized for doing impacts how we enter into relationships. And so what I've heard is that men are saying the expectation tends to be that they initiate sex, that they flirt with their female partner, that they desire her, they tell her she's beautiful, they um, you know, are responsible during sex for providing sexual pleasure, and, um, you know, and kind of feeling that that level of responsibility 
um, is, is kind of damaging for them. It's a bit exhausting, but also that they feel so excited when those roles get reversed. So one of the myths that I talk about in the book is this idea that men say that they want to feel desired in return, that they like when their female partner compliments them, when she reaches out to touch him even romantically, when she initiates sex, when it feels like there's this um, role reversal and this feeling of being desired and wanted. Um, so men were talking about how good that feels. And again, it's just something, um, particularly with heterosexual relationships where men and women receive such different messages growing up about what they should do. Um, men were saying they're really ready to kind of challenge some of those, some of those norms and, and kind of split the workload, if you will, when it comes to sex. And as a therapist, how do you work with people because sometimes in the podcast when we encourage these massive reframings of expectations and cultural norms um the next question is like well great now how <laughs> like i see the benefit i know i want to but undoing these programming can feel so challenging mm -hmm. what are some of the first steps for men to recognize like which myths are impacting them the most and start unpacking some of this for themselves yeah, um, really great question. Um, so it depends. I mean, I, I talk through a bunch of different myths. And so I think, you know, some um, readers have, have reached out to me to let me know that the book in general really hits home for them and that kind of all the myths really apply. Yeah. Sometimes people will reach out saying like this one myth in particularly really resonated. So but part of it is kind of figuring out what really hits home for you. Um, you know, my, my goal with this book or presenting this research is in no way to suggest a new mold of men's sexuality. Um, it is to suggest that maybe we can have a different discourse and allow for more nuances um, within men and between men about their experiences. So if we're talking about this idea of wanting to feel desired as an example, um, what I would suggest is the first thing is just acknowledging. Um, I really do take this approach that it's not on men's shoulders to change it. It's not on women's shoulders to feel responsible. Um, it's really about opening up a dialogue. Um, one of the couples that comes to mind for me um, that I was working with talks about how even having the language around I want to feel desired, feeling desired is important to me, was a critical step in terms of even being able to acknowledge to himself that it was important, that he liked when his female partner kind of reassured him of being wanted through physical touch, just a quick kiss on the cheek when she passed by, giving him a, a rub on the shoulders. When she initiated sex, it kind of put him at ease that, um, that she wanted it um, and that she was an excited participant. Sometimes he worried that if he initiated at the wrong time that he would either be rejected or, um, you know, he, he had his own insecurities around whether she was kind of quote unquote just going along with it, like consenting but not really being that excited about it. Mm -hmm. So all of these things is he was able to vocalize what was important about feeling desired ways that she made him feel wanted, um, you know, it helped him with the language and it helped her understand his needs. Now, with this particular couple, you know, they were in their 60s, they had years and years of learning certain rules about how men and women are supposed to be. And she struggled with the idea of initiating sex because she had been taught for decades that that's not what women do. Um, so again, to your point, not an easy thing for some people to kind of switch. 
Um, but she actually, as we continued our work together, started to play around with the idea that she's never been able to fully embrace sex on her schedule. She was always taught to wait for a partner to indicate he was in the mood or not, or I guess that he was in the mood, sorry, and then she could say if she was or not. Mm -hmm. And as we continued our, our, our exploration of the messages she received about women and sexuality, um, she really started to open up about, wow, this could be really exciting for me to say, hey, I'm interested and tap into the times where her desire was there, but she never actually turned a feeling into action because she was always taught that's not what you do. Um, so I guess that's a kind of long-winded answer to your question, but I think it starts with naming what is important to us, why is it important to us, and asking, are there ways in this relationship that feel comfortable for both of us to take some responsibility to kind of shift these dynamics? There don't blame. There's no like expectation that things have to kind of shift on a dime. Some people find these things a little easier to incorporate, um, you know, sooner. And other people, like I said, with this couple in their 60s um, that's coming to mind for me now, you know, it, it, there's a lot of years to kind of unpack and, and reverse in order to, to kind of challenge some of these myths. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there seems to be this double burden of there's the struggle itself of you're not having the sex you want or the kind of sexual expression you want. And then there's the experience on top of that of the shame and what that means about you and your worth and your position in the relationship. Um, and to try to excavate for ourselves, you know, where is the struggle? Is it the actual experience I'm having with my soft penis or is it the story I'm putting on what that means? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and sometimes, you know, um, throughout my research, men would say things like, you know, if they weren't in the mood, if they turned down sex, um, and whether or not that's because they had an erection or not, or could or could not obtain erection, or they just weren't kind of mentally there. Um, sometimes they were worried about what, how their female partner would respond. You know, would she judge or would she say no next time? And there was kind of some men who talked about that concern. Mm. Um, but some men said, even if their female partner was understanding and reassuring, that they actually felt there was something wrong with them on a personal level that like no amount of reassurance was really going to cut it for them, that they held such a, um, a high standard for themselves in terms of being in the mood. That's what men should do. That's what I've been told men should do. I'm not meeting that norm and talking about the struggle that they experienced internally um, and the judgments they put on themselves in those moments, which I think what you're speaking to is that only intensifies and amplifies um, those negative feelings and makes enjoyable sex less likely. That pressure doesn't really work for um, in our favor. Mm. A few moments ago, you said something I'm so curious about. You said that you, in the book, don't position a new model for male sexuality. I'm curious where you come down on after these conversations, after your years of clinical practice. Where are you seeing our sex culture right now? Where do you feel like we need to head? Are we, do we have a, a broken system? Like, where are you falling on that? Yeah, yeah. I um, that's a great question. I I guess what I mean when I say I'm not trying to create a new mold of melt sexuality, is because you know I do find you know sometimes when I 
um, you know, have written an article, whether it's for Psychology Today or have given a quick interview, you know, I do get a lot of really positive feedback and response, whether it's from men or women or both and couples um, saying this really resonates. I finally feel seen. I finally feel like I understand my partner. Almost inevitably, I'll get that one random comment from someone who says, well, I'm always in the mood. I always feel desire. I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, like I'm not trying to say that just because the men that have participated in my research and the themes and, and, and findings that I've found, um, if that doesn't speak to you, that's fine. You know, not all men are going to fit in this, in this description. But what I really do want to suggest is that we know that other side, right? We're used to that person, um, you know, whether it's uh, a singer, um, you know, or a rapper or, you know, a music video or a TV show or a movie. Like we're used to that archetype of that man who's like, I'm always in the mood, need lots of women, cheating because I can't be satisfied in a monogamous relationship. I was like, we know that story. Um, what we don't have as much knowledge of or space to talk about is all the nuances, the complexities, the time men aren't in the mood, the things that would decrease their sexual interest, the emotional vulnerability involved in initiating sex, the deep um, feelings of, of, of rejection that can happen when uh, sexual initiation and that bid for connection isn't met. We don't talk about that emotional side of men's sexuality and their sexual desire specifically. And I think that really is causing a disservice to us socially. I think it's keeping men in these narrow boxes about what they should demonstrate. I think it's making female partners feel disconnected from their male partners with those assumptions we talked about before, that it's just this physical need and missing out on these emotional connections. And so while I definitely want to push a conversation around how true are these assumptions and is there room for a more nuanced and complicated idea of men's sexuality, um, I never want to come across as saying that, you know, for men who identify as having high sex drives, that there's something inherently wrong with them or that that's a problem. Um, but I just think that there's too many men who have been kind of forced into a box and not given the space to say, hey, my desire is more complex than that. I don't always feel desire. I sometimes want to say no. I find initiating a little exhausting sometimes. I want to feel desired. Um, I think it at least um, allows for a better conversation that that you know allows men some, some variation. <laughs> um, and I think it helps women better understand their male partners in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. And did I, did I your question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it allows men some dignity and feeling less isolated. I get so many emails that start, I've never told anyone this before, dot, dot, dot. And then they reveal a pattern that I've seen thousands of times, right? Yes. So it's, yes. It's, and I'm sure you see this. And how do we deal with this? Um, people feeling alone in what we know are very well established patterns. And exactly. that isolation is part of the struggle. Exactly. That's, that's um, so bang on for my experiences as well. And, you know, I am a woman who's writing about men's sexual desire, but one of the reasons um, that I, or I'm really passionate at least about presenting the research as a real 
um, from the voices of men. I use a lot of quotes so that readers can like hear it as if it was one of their buddies. Um, you know, it's, it's men's words, it's their descriptions. I'm not putting um, my own twist on it. I really want to show um, men what other men are saying because so often what I get is feedback when people read the book or if I kind of have given a tidbit like an interview such as this. Um, you know, they'll say, oh, I thought it was just me. <laughs> and I think it's so important to just hear that other side. Men in my research will say they know that, you know, they hear those conversations and the, the stereotypical like locker room of, hey, did you get laid last night? Or, uh, you know, making comments to a girl who walks by. You know, men that I speak with are actually quite critical of that. And yet there's another part that kind of doubts like, oh, wait, it's not true. Or is it? that's all I hear. We don't have as many dialogues. We don't hear that discourse around men talking about, yeah, you know, work is really hard right now. I'm stressed. When I get home, I just want to, you know, watch a show and go to bed early. And to be honest, sex is kind of the last thing on my mind right now. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of examples of hearing that. And men will say, it's so helpful to know, oh, okay. So that's a thing. Other men experience it. It's not just me. Um, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, you know, I just haven't heard this and I haven't heard my experience um, normalized like that before. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for collecting these narratives, for bringing your wisdom to it. Can you let folks know where to find more from you online? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, thanks for the opportunity. So um, my research is all presented in the book that we're talking about, Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships. And uh, I also write a blog for Psychology Today um, where I touch on a lot of topics, but as much as possible also hit on these issues about, um, about men's sexuality. Um, and it's called Myths of Desire. And again, that's for Psychology Today. Mm -hmm. And what are the questions you're thinking most about right now? Um, so I think what I'm um, still most curious about is at this stage, my research is really focused on um, heterosexual dynamics. And of course, that doesn't apply to all men as identifying as heterosexual or dating women. Um, and so I'm really curious, I think if we're going to um, completely understand, um, if we can ever completely understand anything, but at least better understand men's experiences, um, then of course it has to include men who identify as bisexual, um, as gay, as uh, pansexual, as queer. We need to kind of include more experiences. Are there, say, slightly or maybe even very different experiences of men with different sexual orientations and different relationship structures? Um, I'm particularly interested as, as we get older as well. My, my research, um, you know, starts with men um, my interviews were 30 to 65, my online study, 18 to 65. Um, the people that I work with in a clinical setting are always 18 and over. Um, but I'm particularly curious about the nuances and complexities that hit our life the older that we get. So I'm more and more interested in men's experiences as they hit 30, 40, into their 50s and 60s, um, where there's children, um, mortgages, 
changing um, perspectives on on you know your on your life and your future and retirement. Um, I think life just gets more and more interesting. And I think when we do find studies on men's sexual desire, um, they tend to be more on that college age sample, which I think just continues to reinforce the chances that men describe their desire as higher. You know, if they're 18 to 21, 18 to 25. Um, again, not all men experience high pulsating sex at or sexual desire at that time either, but the chances are that you know life is a little more um, fun and carefree. Biology and and like you know diseases, testosterone hasn't decreased. There's there's certain things that kind of reinforce that stereotype if we continue to use college age samples in our research. So I'm really fascinated about focusing on um, men's sexual orientations beyond that heterosexual dynamic, and particularly kind of that middle to later age in life. Fabulous. I can't wait to learn more with you. Sarah, thank you so much for taking your time and sharing your wisdom with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Come on over to pleasuremechanics.com for our complete podcast archive. And I will link to a few other episodes about men's sexuality in the show notes page for this episode so you can continue the conversation be sure to sign up for our free online course, The Erotic Essentials, at pleasuremechanics.com free. That's pleasuremechanics.com free. We will be back with you next week with another episode of Speaking of Sex. Remember, we are 100% supported by our listening community. So if you love this show and want to support the work we are doing, head on over to pleasuremechanics.com love and show us some love to help keep this show going and growing. We will see you next week. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers. <laughs>